Lucas on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas. It's a precious artifact. The Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. includes a display of several articles that President Abraham Lincoln had with him on the night of his assassination. One of the articles is a worn-out newspaper clipping which celebrated his accomplishments as president. It reads, Abe Lincoln is one of the greatest statesmen of all time. The very accomplished Mr. Lincoln needed regular positive reinforcement in his life. If left unchallenged, negativity can permeate and overcome any one of us. The truth is, if we're living and breathing, we need encouragement. No matter our age, position or stature as human beings, we're wired with the innate desire and need for encouragement. Many have recalled the friendship between two of history's great authors, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. In fact, Tolkien was highly influenced by Lewis, encouraging him to write The Lord of the Rings. The encouraging words of C.S. Lewis spurred Tolkien towards what has become a literary masterpiece read by millions. More recently, just a couple of weeks ago, Pop superstar Madonna said that she's on the road to recovery and she issued a thank you message for what she described as positive energy, prayers and words of healing and encouragement sent to her by her fans. The singer was forced to postpone several upcoming tour dates after spending days in intensive care last month. She developed a serious bacterial infection, her management said in a statement. She was grateful for encouragement. Very importantly, the Bible tells us that our God is the God of encouragement. Romans 15 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. God is encouraging. And if we want to be like him, we need to be encouragers too. Encouragement brings strength. I love Facebook. I hate Facebook. I vacillate between the two. I read a moving real-life story of courage or faith, and I'm inspired. Real-life stories do that to us. But then I ponder the photographs that some people post on social media, capturing images of this morning's breakfast, what a beautiful slice of bacon that was, or of their new fluorescent lime green socks, or the nasty bruise they got on their left calf while playing hockey yesterday. And then I just feel indifferent. Worse still, I scan the accumulated rants of some Christians who are engaged in a furious row over some minor apostrophe in Leviticus. My eyes run over the capital letters and the exclamation marks and I feel soul-sinking despair. It must be tiresome being right all the time as these bellowing, blustering believers are. It's exhausting reading their smug homilies. But it's even more debilitating when I'm personally on the receiving end of an online jolly good telling off. Some years ago, while I was in Minehead speaking at Spring Harvest, I enjoyed... I say enjoyed with some sarcasm, I enjoyed being awakened every morning by screaming seagulls. They began their squawking serenade at 5am, and so I made the mistake of posting a tongue-in-cheek Facebook update, Jeff would like to leave a little something for the noisy seagulls, like a hand grenade. 
Within minutes, my Facebook page was alive with tut-tutting messages for my irate Christians who wanted me to know that Jesus loves seagulls as much as he loves me. An interesting thought that I don't have time to discuss today, but I also wonder if he has the same level of love for the chicken that I had for lunch today. I got a mass rebuking for what was intended as a mildly humorous comment. Media makes anyone who does anything publicly an easy target. Some years ago, one of my Facebook posts created an even greater stir, another throwaway comment that created mass confusion. I mentioned in one post that I was planning to change my name. People were bewildered, understandably. Was this chap formerly known as Jeff following in the footsteps of the artist formerly known as Prince? What on earth was I doing? And the answer was simple. I was changing my name to Grandad. Within days, my grandson Stanley Benjamin was born and made my world a far brighter place. But my Facebook post got me thinking. In biblical history, the changing of someone's name was usually loaded with significance. Abraham became Abraham, the father of nations. Jesus gave a tempestuous fisherman called Simon a name change and he became Peter, the rock. Saul, a vicious persecutor of Christians, became apostolic preacher Paul. And in the early days of the infant church, a chap formerly known as Joseph was dubbed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, and he lived up to his name. Such an encourager. It was this Joseph Barnabas name change that really caught my attention because I'd like a name just like his. How amazing to be named after a primary trait like encouragement. If I was named after my primary physical trait, I'd probably be dubbed something like Lucas who has a nose that can see around corners. I'm equally humbled and challenged by the thought of ever being named after my primary personality trait. Joseph Barnabas must have been encouraged himself by being named a son of encouragement. But being an encourager is surely not just a matter of temperament or disposition, even though there are some who seem more naturally inclined to cheer others on. For most of us, encouragement comes from discipline. We can choose to cheer. It's too easy to drift into cynicism or even march around as a stern critic. How swiftly we can become picky, awkward, hard to please people, rarely carrying a smile. But encouragement, it costs nothing to give, and it does more than anything that money can buy. A word of sincere encouragement, insincere encouragement given for false motives is called flattery and totally values the currency of encouragement. But real encouragement can send the clouds packing and energize the weary with the strength to walk another mile. And I've experienced that personally. I'm so grateful that in my years of ministry, so many people have been incredibly kind and encouraging to me. It's always a delight to hear that a sermon or a book or a broadcast has been helpful to someone on their journey. Some people preface their gracious words of encouragement by saying, you probably hear this all the time, but I wanted to just say thank you. But truthfully, it never stops being helpful to know that in some small way, someone's life has been impacted. And encouragement is especially welcome in the darker seasons of life. Forgive the personal disclosure, but I went through a couple of years that were very wintry for me. 
My mother finally succumbed to dementia and I had the honour and challenge of leading her memorial service. And then, in a short space of time, Kay and I lost a number of dear friends, three in tragic accidents, two to long-term illnesses. Emotionally, I was feeling exhausted and hopeless at times. And this is where I'm supposed to say that through it all, God felt very close and strengthened me for the journey. But if I'm honest, that's true. At times, I felt very alone and even abandoned. Perhaps you know the feeling. And if my words, my sharing seems shocking, the psalmist certainly experienced the desolation of feeling that God had relocated somewhere far, far away and hadn't left us a forwarding address. But the truth is, more often, the comfort of God comes through people because we're not called to stand on our own two feet. The common suggestion that true strength is proved when we live self-sufficient, independent lives because we can't count on anyone but ourselves, this is a false and foolish notion as the life and the death of Jesus reveals. I recently stood in the Garden of Gethsemane with a group of friends that were part of a tour to the Holy Land. The tortured look of the trees fittingly portrayed all that had happened there as Jesus spent an agonizing evening in the hours before his arrest, trial and execution. He knew what was coming and willingly submitted himself to it. But despite the fact that God's plan of human redemption was being played out, Jesus felt terrible anguish in that garden And so he specifically sought the warmth and encouragement of human friendship, wanting his friends to not only be with him in his wrestling, but be praying with him too. Jesus needed strength from the Father, and he needed the companionship of his closest friends and inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Of the twelve, those three alone had been privy to some of his most glorious moments, and they'd shared in his darkest times too. So, who is there in our orbit that could use a phone call, a handwritten note, or a kind word from us today? With a random act of kindness, we could go ahead and make someone's day. Our words might transform a wintry, dreary day into an unexpected springtime. And it's not just about the words we say. We can encourage by receiving the words of others, in short, by listening. One casualty of the hypermedia age is the simple art of truly hearing others. Most conversations are dialogues of the deaf, exchanges between those who are actually perfectly able to hear audibly, but they just don't listen. An attentive listener is rare. When we listen, we make a profound statement with our pause and silence. We communicate that others matter and that their opinion counts. When we listen, we demonstrate patience, showing that we're willing to travel with others in their thought processes as they think out loud. So, with words spoken and with words withheld as we listen, let's be encouragers. As we've been thinking about encouragement, I have to confess that I think that we Brits can be frightfully good at being negative. Can I say that without sounding negative? I confess there are times when I fly into Heathrow and feel as if a great wet blanket of pessimism has been dropped on me from a great height. 
as I walk into the arrivals area. On some days, it seems that everyone seems to own a facial expression that implies that they are in need of much bran because they haven't had a decent bowel movement for decades, or so it seems. Perhaps it's our dark, satanic weather. A nation with a summer that usually doesn't last for more than 45 minutes has a right to be a bit glum. A leading politician recently bewailed what she called the great British disease of negativity, and perhaps she's right. Our negativity is not only evidenced in our turn of phrase, we're never doing well, rather we're not too bad, not good, that would be wildly superficial, or we can't complain, we'd love to, but there'll be something just around the corner that will justify a strop, but in the meantime we wait in anticipation, but also in the bizarre reality that we seem to want people to not succeed. We celebrate the underdog and tend to savage the achiever. We're nervous and suspicious of the successful. Isn't that just jealousy thinly veiled? And then there's the way that we greet or don't greet each other. We're fairly gifted in the art of totally ignoring strangers, feeling that someone who actually speaks to us without the preface of a formal introduction is at best somewhat forward and therefore rather iffy. At worst, this verbose person may well be a roving pervert and therefore worthy of a stoning, or at least stony silence. Pity the bored passenger who tries to kickstart a conversation in a railway carriage. He or she may be viewed with the suspicion normally reserved for an escaped felon. And so we ride in lifts, rock backwards and forwards, hanging to straps on the tube, and generally go about life without much acknowledging of each other's existence. Of course, I'm not suggesting that life should be going from one little jaunty chap to another with all and sundry, but an occasional moment of kinship wouldn't go amiss. And this is not just a secular problem. I've experimented with saying hello to strangers at a number of Christian conferences. I occasionally like to catch people's eyes and then offer a warm good morning. The response or lack of it can be astounding. People respond by giving me, away from me, you grubby deviant look, or they just ignore me altogether, which of course is their right, but isn't that a little strange? A couple of times, having been totally stared down and coldly ignored, I wander on and I'm tempted to say quite loudly, all right then, not good morning. And negativity can have more significantly damaging effects. It can turn you into a hunt who is always looking for a prize problem. I've met Christians who are constantly on the lookout for something to be upset about in their churches. Life for them is a long, tiresome safari in dogged pursuit of the next irritation. They attend church meetings subconsciously hoping and almost praying that there will be something that will displease them and trigger yet another opportunity for a good gripe. I reckon they've actually been offended from birth and were probably quite upset with the midwife's welcome. Don't you slap me. Where does this virus of negativity come from? Is it left over from a World War II generation that were bombed into believing that there might not be a horizon beyond their horror? They certainly had every reason to lose hope as they cowered in underground stations during the Blitz and dared not expect too much. Have we, a younger, unbloodied generation, embraced some of their stoicism without ever having experienced the horrendous pressures that they face daily? Are we just boringly negative without cause, we who decades later have never had it so good? One antidote for the negativity bug is encouragement 
and affirmation. A friend of mine has, in my opinion, the greatest gift of encouragement I've ever seen. He's the type of chap who would be great in a crisis. If you were unfortunate enough to get your feet run over by a truck, not only would he drive you to the hospital, but he'd also offer to buy your slippers. He can always be relied upon to come up with some jaunty comment to help bring a little sunshine into an otherwise dingy day. We were playing golf together one day. Now, my golf is totally appalling and should probably be videoed for a look at this useless twit before he took this golf training kind of product. My swing is not so much a swing as an involuntary spasm. I teed off and promptly drove the ball right into a lake. I was not happy and was tempted to mutter an expletive like, oh dear, when my friend jumped in with a smile as big as the bunker that I'd narrowly missed on the way to the water feature. Great shot, Jeff, he exuded, slapping me on the back. I responded, now I know that you're a superficial, cheesy type person who says absolutely nothing of substance or authenticity, I cried. How could he congratulate me on such a dreadful performance? I reminded him of the facts of the matter. Look, I just hit the ball straight into the water. You did indeed, he smiled. But Jeff, you just hit the ball. Sad as I am to admit that just connecting club to ball constitutes a golfing triumph for me, he was actually quite right. In that sense, it was a great shot because it was a shot, no matter its ultimate wet resting place. And so, encouraged to keep going, I am considering taking lessons that will help me place a little ball into a small hole from ever-increasing distances. Encouragement nudges me to give it all another go. So let's be people who are truly countercultural. Let's raise our glasses in gratitude, make affirmation and thankfulness, encouragement, our common currency, and do our best to catch someone doing something right. That way, we'll represent Jesus better. After all, he is the one who promises to cut the ribbon of eternity by greeting his faithful ones, not with a could-have-done-better list, but with a simple two-word welcome. Well done. See you next week. Lucas on Life.